0: What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I am your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The Key to success in this game is to master your mindset, your behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Here we are on episode 50. I can hardly believe it when I say that, that's 50 weeks, 50 episodes, we're coming up on 12 months and um, I never thought I would make it this far because most podcasts do not make it beyond episode 7. So happy to report that, things are going well, hope you guys are enjoying this, please connect with me and let me know what are your favourite episodes to date, I'm going to try and do more of the ones that have been most popular and I have some great guests lined up for the next uh, couple of weeks and months ahead. So this week, I am speaking with my guest, Carol Tallon. Last week, I was speaking about real estate wholesaling and deal sourcing. And um, before I get into an introduction to Carol, I just thought I'd give you a quick update on my personal YouTube channel, which is now live. Now, that channel is Gavin J. Gallagher. And I know some of you have already popped in and subscribed and left comments, and those are all very welcome. And um, I'm always grateful to hear from my listeners. but. I'd love if the rest of you guys, if you haven't checked it out already, please go and check it out. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. And if you'll just go in there, subscribe, leave a comment. Let me know that you've come over from the podcast. So I know you're one of the original listeners. I'm going to be putting up some behind the scenes footage from this podcast. You know, those kind of moments that weren't Uh, Good enough to make it into the podcast because they were either mistakes or funny, you know, bloopers and things like that. All of that stuff is going to go in and I think it should make for some enjoyable watching. All right, enough. This is a long episode. As always, my conversations kind of drag out a little bit, but that's because um, we're all kind of talking about stuff that we're passionate about and uh, Carol is no exception. She is really a force of nature. She's a fellow Irish property podcaster. She has her weekly show, Property Matters, which covers a lot of uh, local Irish market topics. And she's also a multiple best-selling author. And probably best known for her books, uh, the Irish Property Buyers Handbook, which were, came out a couple of years ago. She's also the founder of PropTech Ireland, which is essentially the association that looks after PropTech in the Irish market. And she's also the startup founder. Uh, she started a company called Engage, which basically brings developers and local communities together to kind of try to see eye to eye, because often there's this kind of um, opposing views of what a development will look like. So she's brought in augmented reality a technology to try to bridge that gap. She's also the founder and CEO of Property District, which is a probably best described as a media services business that works directly with Irish property planning and construction sectors. And so if you're reading articles about, you know, the construction sector or about the planning sector or anything, a lot of the time those are articles that Carol herself will have written. And most recently she has been working on, as if she hasn't got enough on her plate, she's been working on creating a venture capital fund that will go into Irish prop tech and uh, things of that nature. And uh, uh, we had a little chat offline and she was explaining that this is a a tough one, and she's been challenged by it, but um, I don't doubt that we'll be seeing a VC fund in no time at all. Uh, So look, it's probably best to just let Carol do the explaining of all of this herself. Uh, So without further ado, my conversation with Carol Tallon. Carol, it's been a while. How are you doing?
1: Good. It has been a challenging 12 months, and I'm so envious of all these people. I hear about downtime and, and new hobbies. Um really, I, I think I'd like to have a few of them coming yeah. in to help me. Yeah. So I'm it's definitely been a challenging 12 months, but there's there, there, it's been a mixed bag.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Tell me. Well, it's been it's great to have you on the show. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different for you today, perhaps, because you're normally the host of the show, not the guest. So uh, and uh, I have to say that I credit you with that final push to get me out of my comfort zone and start my own podcast um, a, a couple of years back I used to present on your show a fair bit I just thought we'd start with the first kind of um, way we came together I think I think it was Lucinda Crichton from uh, from property that introduced us way back in 2015 and and you made it onto my 20. 20- 18 prop tech influencer list that uh, that went out.
1: I love those lists.
0: So listen, um, Cara, going through your 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 LinkedIn profile today just to kind of like make sure that I had my facts right. I was kind of like, whoa, where do I start? And uh, I just thought for the purpose, like everyone in, in Ireland, obviously you're well known, given you have your own property show, um, Property Matters and stuff, but. Given that this is kind of an international audience listening to this podcast, can you just give a quick overview of who Carol Tallent is?
1: And um, you know, God, that question was so much easier when there wasn't two decades out of college. Like sometimes I forget that I've aged as much as I have. Sometimes I still feel like a twenty-four-year-old founder, um, and I haven't been that for more than a decade and a half. But my background, uh, my background is in law, and that's as much of a surprise to me as it was to anybody who knew me I definitely wasn't a good student uh, growing up and um, I grew up on a dairy farm with uh, in Wicklow which I loved and in fact every so often in my crazier moments I think I really should have worked with animals but no I I ended up um, studying law and I surprisingly loved the course but once I got into practice didn't like it at all Um, and didn't last long, just a couple of years, um, just a couple of years there. I lasted six months in the civil service. After the first two months, I handed my notice. So I, I, I worked for six months in my entirety in the public sector. Two of those were actually working, for those were serving notice. And then I never went into the public sector again. Um, so I was in private practice then for a couple of years and worked mainly in the area of uh, debt collection, probate, and conveyancing and I was involved in some kind of interesting projects there and that's really where I was introduced to innovation. Um, So that was that was my first introduction to technology, innovation and that professional services could be digitized and that's going back kind of 20 odd years ago. Um, But from the time within a couple of years I'd say by my mid-20s I I knew I wanted to start my own business because I didn't understand the way everybody around me was leading. I just didn't understand and I wasn't. I, I wasn't. able. So I was and I was an exceptionally bad employee um, and I left the minute I had the chance. Uh, um, I think for me, it was once uh, Katie, my daughter, was making her first communion, I thought, okay, I've been the responsible adult for as long as I need to. Um, Katie was born while I was still in college doing my law degree. So um she was part of my early career. Um once she made her leaving cert, I thought, or sorry, once she made her communion, I was thinking that's it, that's the grown up enough. Um, so I went out and started a business and I've been self-employed ever since, but with a lot of the same core team around me, actually. So that's heading for 16, 17 years now. Um, And I I loved property. I, I just loved it. I couldn't understand how it was so badly put together. I couldn't understand how it was so badly managed, how it was so badly sold. But I loved it. So actually, my first business was spending nearly 10 years working as the opposite to an estate agent. And at the time... I didn't what do you, know what
0: do you mean by the opposite to a city?
1: Well, I now know that that's buyer's agency, but the, such a thing didn't exist in Ireland, but I just knew that whatever estate agents were doing, I needed to be doing the absolute opposite of that. So I sat down and kind of designed uh, together with my partner at the time, Orla Fitzmaurice, and we still work very closely together. So anybody who knows me would know Orla because we've worked together kind of heading close to two decades now or certainly 16, 17 years. And um Together, we sat down and we we picked holes with um all of the, the we picked holes where there was problems with the property service. And then we designed a solution to fit that. And when we pulled it together, it looked very like what buyers agency maybe in the U.S. looked like. Um, but again, it didn't exist in Ireland. This was, you know, I'm not going to say it was pre Google, Google, but it was very early days. So we just didn't have access to information about other markets in the same way. Um, but for years, that's that's what I did. Um, I drove all over the country, finding, sourcing properties. I, I set out with the intention of working for first time buyers because they needed the most help. Um, and actually, the reason we knew that is because I'd worked on on a fixed price conveyancing legal service that made us realise when we were working on new developments, we could see that the same properties were selling for very different prices. And when the reality, and a lot of people don't realize this, but, um, you know, conveyancing solicitors can only record the deal that's been done. You know, they're brought in at a point that's too far advanced to actually be able to influence it. And I could see very clearly, you know, looking at a diff- couple of different sets of conveyancing papers that uh, and contracts, there were very different deals done. And actually, when I explored even a little bit further, I could see, Usually it was as simple as, you know, one person maybe had their dad along with them, or this couple yeah. had a builder along with them. You know, it was so surprising to see what a little bit of negotiation could do. So um at 24, 25, we went out and, and negotiated um contracts and deals like this. And what we realized very quickly is that yes, buyers want 1st time buyers wanted to use us, but they didn't have any money to use us. Yeah. So we ended up working for buy-to-let investors. So that was the bread and butter. Um, so for years uh buying investment properties um sourcing properties or for people who were outside of Ireland at the time, so did that for a number of years and then, um you know throughout this, I suppose it was the crash. you know this was kind of two thousand and six, yeah. and so the market crashed very soon after that and actually i i it certainly wasn't through planning or any special knowledge, but um the business model that we had set up was fantastic for that kind of dysfunction. So we had a couple of really good years. So when the market was in turmoil, we had some really good years. I mean, we were getting off-market properties, uh, properties for 30%, 40 50% below market value. Right. You know, so it was, it was a really great time for that business model. And by 2011, things had started to pick up. So actually, the business model wasn't great. Suddenly, there mm. were lots of um, buyers in the market. There was lots of cash. And... Our model needed a dysfunctional, um, dysfunctional market. So actually, once the recovery started to happen, the model didn't hold up as well. But actually by then I had started contributing to TV radio. And I was writing um a column in the Sunday Business Post first and then in the Sunday Independent, a weekly property column. And effectively that all that all led to um writing the The first of a couple of books and property annuals. And what I realized was that I, I I really was passionate about sharing what was going on in the marketplace because at that time, I don't know if you remember, but we didn't have the property price register. You know, we didn't have information about the market um, and all of the information that was publicly available came from a state agent. So there was, you know, there was a sales slant on it. So b- by doing a really radical thing of just telling people what we found out about the market by telling people what our experience was. There was such a demand for that, that actually it led to me getting a publishing deal um, that went on for a number of years and publishing an uh, an annual um, about property.
0: That was the Irish property handbook, wasn't it? Uh,
1: The Irish property buyer's handbook. And, um, you know, gosh, you know, it's amazing Look, I, I know that you talk a lot about mindset and I know that you will remember what those times were like. But my first annual, I think, came out in 2011, which means um, it was it went to the publishers in, in I think, 2010. And I can remember um, walking downtown to post three chapters of my book to a publishers that I had found online because at that time, the business wasn't going well. I needed to find a new income stream, um, and 2010 was a pretty tough time. Or t- sorry, well, early 2011. It was a tough time in the marketplace purely because actually we were starting to see more cash coming in, or more buyers, and more international buyers. So I remember putting the the I turning three blog posts that I had written into chapters, sending them off to a publisher. And at the time, all of the research had been oh publishers take six to eight months to come back to you. So I was thinking, I've plenty of time to write a book by the time they come back to me. And that was that was in the afternoon, walked down to the post office and the following morning at about 10 o'clock, I got a call from one of the one of the six publishers that I contacted or sent the chapters out to. And they called me in for a meeting straight away. And at the meeting, I was given a contract and um actually (laughs) at the time they said uh so the book is done and I said yeah of course it's done because I knew there was enough content there in the blog but it wasn't actually put together so I asked for two weeks to polish it and put it together so effectively sat down and 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 pulled the book together um in about two weeks and it was on shelves within about oh definitely less than 12 weeks which is pretty unheard of and but I learned a lot from doing that as well, because while I was going through that, um, that was with a, a publishing house in Dublin, a second publishing house, which is a very well-known brand, contacted me as I was through go, going out through that process. And at the time, I actually ended up with two offers to do the book. And one of them was a much more credible, larger publishing house. And. Um, but they wouldn't have been able to put me on the roster until the following year. And I needed to be on shelves straight away because you know yeah. I, I, I yeah. had a business to run.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I made the decision. I went with the smaller publishing house for the for the first year. And I remember when my royalties check came in for the first year, that's when I discovered that the smaller house, publishing house, used the larger house for distribution. So the larger publisher that I had rejected actually got 50% of the takings of my book anyway and it cut my margin more and I learned a really valuable lesson through that <laughs> there's a lot to be said so I am much smarter about negotiation deals like that and I did switch and went to a different publishing house then for the second and subsequent books but um, I, I learned a lot about you know when you're desperate when you're hungry and you need to move fast um, you can lose a lot by doing that <laughs>
0: that's true so carol i'm just looking at your the role that you have in uh, in linkedin and it's you're the ceo of property district founder of proptech ireland host of the property matters weekly uh, podcast and then you're also you've got this um, proptech startup called place engage and and we've just talked about your multiple books i mean <laughs> and then you do training program for estate agents i mean where do you find the time for all of these activities that you've got going
1: honestly um I was called a type a personality before I understood what it meant it's not a compliment um I I work a lot um and I think a lot of this comes down to the fact that um I had my daughter in college I was a single parent throughout so actually choosing to be self-employed um at a time when you know when when i started my first business there was no such thing as social welfare supports for entrepreneurs you were either working or you weren't working you know now things have changed but it was different back then so actually if i didn't um if i didn't bring in income we didn't eat and we couldn't pay rent that particular yeah. month so you know there was um I, I i was driven by necessity because i i had to be but also the fact that Katie was born while i was still in college meant I was so used to working multiple jobs, full time college, uh, doing assignments and having a small baby. So quite frankly, I, you know, I can remember and it, I, obviously I, I don't stand by this now, but I do remember 25 years ago giving other people a hard time saying things like there are 24 usable hours in every day. And um, now that I'm in my 40s, I no longer believe that I, I think there's like seven and a half usable hours in every day. And I'm really str- <laughs> I'm struggling with the rest. But um, no, I, I did. I, I look, I, I work a lot, but I actually a lot of it doesn't feel like work to me. So, for example, I, I mentioned to you at the moment I'm doing this um, accelerator program and it is slightly kicking my ass. Excuse my language on the podcast, but it, it really is. It's one of the most challenging things I've done, but it's not work because I'm passionately interested in the topic. I absolutely believe I can make a difference if it's successful and you know, so, so when you love what you do, like, it's a bit of a cliche, but when you love what you do, it genuinely doesn't feel like work, you know, like my reading tends to feed into this. Um, I get so energized by the people I meet with. Um, So, yeah, when, when people, I, I you know, I would imagine that most of the people I work with only know one section of what I do. I they you. couldn't know all of it because if actually if they knew all, but they would probably think, okay, this person is all over the place but the truth is to me to me it's very simple and actually property district really brought it together for me Um, uh, property district you know since since um 2015 I, I really sat down and tried to pull together all of the things that i was interested in that i was passionate about and the ways that i really believed i could make a difference in the industry and and genuinely help people but still create a good living and a life for myself. And I realized that of all of the jobs that I had done and the study that I had done and the work, the things that I were most that I was most passionate about was the communication side of it. So whether you want to label it public relations or communications or Mm -hmm. marketing or digital marketing, the reality is it's all about connecting with somebody, taking what you learn there, share it with the next and then doing that on a on a wider scale. Um, and I, I don't I, look a lot of a lot of time, Certainly in the early days, I was doing that for my own benefit. I was really interested in it, and this is how I learned. So no. actually, there was a huge learning in it. But um, so so property district. Um, one of the things I'd learned from the crash and from my previous business after kind of eight years or, or thereabouts, what I realised was that um, I couldn't work on a commission based model. Um, And I couldn't work on a, um, you know, that there needed to be something a little bit more stable. So actually what I did was I looked at all the things that I genuinely loved, like writing content. I could, you know, to be honest, even now I knock out in terms of content and ghostwriting um, for for clients. I knock out the equivalent of a a short novel every week. Um, And I I do that without even thinking about it because it's stuff I'm interested in. and. So uh, essentially, I designed a service that people would want on a recurring basis. So at the moment, we write... Yeah, so we write content. Uh, we do social media management. Um, you know, uh, uh, strategic communications. And one of the areas that that I that I love, but we don't talk a lot about because it's so confidential, is that uh, we deal with crisis communications. And the crisis communications actually is the thing that brought me into this industry. You know, at the time coming out of the crash, the construction industry, the the property developers, uh, people in in property, they were so maligned they were so yeah. abused verbally through the media uh through uh um, politics there was such a distrust um that made yeah. it really unhelpful there was a real disconnect
0: i can remember the we the, the developers were considered the kind of enemy of the state almost because they they were perceived to have brought down the economy um through all of the the, the borrowing and stuff like that
1: yeah i i i absolutely saw that and i i you know, at the time, and, and by the way, I'm somebody who really, um, you know, I lost my first home in the crash because, again, I was one of the very early, early um, casualties of the crash when, when uh, back before, um, you know, before I wrote my first book and everything, I had really, when I, when I commit 100%, I commit 100% and I lost my first home through that. And, wow. you know, but it's, I, yeah, but the difference is, I think, I 100% took responsibility for that because at any point I could have made the smart decision and just got into a job and I didn't want to do that. So that is the price you pay for following your passion. Right. And, mm. you know, you know. so I accepted it as that. Now, unfortunately, that happened long before some of the structural changes came in, you know, that reduced bankruptcy times or that, um, you know, stalled all repossessions and things like that. So, you know, again, I, you know, I, we Well, I was definitely one of the early, early casualties of the crash. You know, before it was a little more comfortable to be. Not that it was ever very comfortable, obviously, but um, one of the early people. And the surprising thing is that didn't make me turn against the industry. The very opposite. I could see so clearly where I'd made mistakes. I could see so clearly where I had made bad decisions. Um, and I honestly, it really felt like throwing down the gauntlet to do better next time. And so I couldn't wait to get back into it. I couldn't wait to do this better. I couldn't wait to capitalize on what I'd learned, Um, you know, and honestly, there have been, you know, I'm now in the very fortunate position where when I succeed and succeed in something, I get lots of lovely publicity for it and it's great. And, you know, I don't get as much publicity around the stuff that has failed, you know, which is great. But there have definitely been more failures than successes. And that's just the reality, I think. But it doesn't bother me too much. Um, I think that's for most
0: entrepreneurs, there's there's a huge I mean, the only way to to win is actually to go through multiple uh, failures. And but you don't call it a failure. You just call it a lesson. (laughs) Ultimately, it's just you either win or you learn. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, no, do you know, what I, I I absolutely think that's true. You know, um, I think it's got Elon Musk, I think, really articulates this well. You know, he, he says things like a failure. I think he calls it like the crucible of learning. Um, And I, I, I remember hearing him talk about the, the failed rockets, the first three failed rockets, you know. And, and, you know, but he was very he was very detached, you know, not taking this personally. The reality is. He, and he was right. You know, there are so many more ways to fail than to succeed. And, you know, so chances are you're going to have to fail a good few times uh, on the way to succeeding. And, um, you know, for, for me, I, I, I don't know. I don't know why it didn't bother me in the same way that maybe it does other people. Or maybe I just see it as part of the larger picture. But. You know, there's something really amazing about being in control of your life and being in control of the decisions you make and being able to then take responsibility for the decisions you make, take accountability for everything. I think that's
0: the key, I, yeah. that's the key is, taking, is being accountable and taking responsibility, because I've spoken before about when I went through my struggles after the crash, um, you know, I ended up, you know, millions and millions in debt for and, and for a number of years. I was beating myself up and feeling very kind of sorry for myself. And it was only actually when I did what you've been saying there is like just really realized that, hold on a sec, there is no rescue plan here. You either just own up to your mistakes and get on with it. Stop blaming the economy or the bank manager or whoever it was that, you know, kind of led down this path. It was me borrowing all the money that I did at the top of the market at the end of the day. Once you accept that. You can sort of find yourself a path out of it, but until you've accepted that, if you're in that victim mentality and you're saying to yourself, "No, it's somebody else's fault. It wasn't my. It wasn't me who did yeah. it," you're just going to be constantly there, kind of blaming other people rather than figuring out a solution.
1: You see, what I hear when I when, when I hear you say that, Gavin, what that tells me is that you obviously went into a much healthier self esteem because at no point did it ever occur to me to blame somebody else for that because I had made the decision as a single parent to go and be self-employed just because I liked property because I got a kick out of it uh, because I, I found it endlessly fascinating. Um, you know, so actually at no point did it ever cross my mind to blame somebody else because quite frankly, anybody around me did warn me not to do it and I still did it. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely. And, and apart from the else, again, when you, when you, somebody counting on you when you're responsible for other people you don't even have the luxury of or the time for downtime as in you have to bounce from one thing to the next to the next i knew i needed to just find a way to leverage what i enjoyed doing and make money off it in a scalable way and still give myself that all-important uh time to explore and actually that's where prop tech ireland came into it um because I, I was fascinated by, because I was a, a columnist as well in the in the newspapers and doing some radio and TV work, startups would come to me seeing, could I help them get into the industry? Because I don't know if you remember, Gavin, you probably do, I'm sure, a lot of the early days of tech innovation, it was very much uh, consumer-led. So people who'd had issues with the industry wanted to solve them, but not, didn't know much about the industry. Yeah. And personally, I thought that was very clever. Um, But if I had been more establishment within the industry, I might not have thought that I might have seen that as a threat. Um, But what I found really, you know, when I started PropTech Ireland, I was looking at all these complicated solutions. Did it need to be a venture fund? Did it need to be an accelerator program? Did it need to be academically linked? And then I realized it was just so simple. All I needed to do was give startups an hour of my time, sit down over coffee. Um, have a chat with them share what insight I knew about the market and the most valuable thing I did was say um, okay I think this person might be able to help you and open a door to somebody else and it might have been the case that you know because at the time going back five years ago the, the traditional industry was very closed doors to um, mm-hmm. technology startups so actually sometimes it was as simple as uh phoning somebody who was already in my mobile, I already had their phone number saved, ringing them and saying, listen, will you will you listen to this startup? Will you tell me what you think of their business model? Will you allow them in to just test, test their hypothesis here? Will you offer a testing environment? And the thing is when the startups did well, they got in, they got the testing environments, they got access to early customers, and that led to, um, in a lot of cases, financing. What was really interesting, though, and what really blew my mind that I didn't know, um, a lot of the startups, uh, PropTech, you know, Enterprise Ireland, they they weren't interested in PropTechs back five years ago. They are now, but they weren't, you know, they're not leaders in the true sense of the word. So um, there wasn't a lot of funding going around for construction tech and PropTech startups mm. um, going back five years ago in Ireland. But when you could give a startup um, access to a testing environment, particularly if it was on the construction side, you had construction, you know, uh, main contractors, developers, you would the business owners saying, this is interesting. This solves a problem. I'm willing to personally invest. So actually it brought it brought private investors into the startup funding ecosystem that had never engaged at that that level before. And I thought that was really interesting, um, you know, because suddenly we weren't just tapping into the existing funding ecosystem for PropTech and construction startups. We were actually getting access to networks that yeah. were invaluable, you know, and so th- that's really interesting. And so that's the kind of area I've been trying to nurture over the last number of years. But PropTech Ireland... You know it it's it, it, I, I I describe it as not for profit. It's not even that formal. You know, it, it's um it started as mentoring. It turned into something a little more dysfunctional, like um acting as a big sister to some of these startups. Mm-hmm. But there are some there's just some amazing talent in Ireland. We have some sure. really good deep tech developers. We have some really clever people. And I think what's been really interesting to watch over the past two to three years is that we're seeing a lot more industry led innovation so actually now the traditional industry is starting to to recognize ways to innovate and we're seeing people leaving um whether it's the electrical services or contracting and they're designing solutions for that industry and they're really interesting ones there's some particularly good SaaS models coming out of ireland on the construction side
0: they're looking at the they're looking at what's happened to the banking system and the, the fact that fintech has come along and disrupted all the big banks and stuff. And mm. I think people are starting to wake up and realize that construction and property, you know, the old way of doing things is going to be disrupted. And if you're not part of the disruptors, you're going to be the guy that getting disrupted, you know. So it's,
1: yeah. uh, But, you know, a part of it as well comes down to having worked. In the in the legal side of things, and then moving to the property side, and now much more on the construction side of things, I can see that there are definitely personality types that go into each of those professions. And you look, I I don't know, is it just kind of a, an affinity with the people who find themselves in construction? But they're a hugely innovative bunch. They might not be technology driven, but they're very innovative. They're so savvy about the process that needs to be followed. Um, Construction is a high value, but low margin business. So actually the attention to anything that will uh, shave that margin is quite high. And also it's a very... You know, despite everything that we're hearing about COVID, it's an exceptionally safe environment. It has been for decades now. Um, You know, so actually investment in safety, investment in compliance, investment in anything that is process driven and more recently, obviously, um, leaning towards a, a more data driven approach. But there's been an appreciation around that. So actually, I found the mindset of people in construction to be so... So forward thinking. And I think sometimes because it's not necessarily technology driven, that was overlooked and, you know, was referred to as a dinosaur industry. That's just not the reality. In fact, anybody who's anybody who's involved in creating something out of nothing, that's that's innovative, that's creativity. and, And that's what that whole industry is. It's just been. You know, I I think it's been woefully misrepresented over the decades. And that's
0: that's where you come in (laughs) as a a communications person. Yeah. Yeah. I I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, being at the forefront of the industry's communications and stuff like that. I mean, what are the big challenges facing the industry Um, or facing, you know, from the industry side and then the consumers out there? You know, what are the big focuses at the moment from the industry?
1: honestly one of the least helpful things that's going on at the moment is this um and it has been for almost a decade and um, but it's almost it it had turned a corner and now it's coming back but this um anti developer anti development anti construction um you know this sentiment is starting to get a little bit populist at the moment. And that's Mm. that's a problem. You know, certainly one of the biggest challenges I see at the moment. um, And, you know, you reference their place engage. Place engage is a is designed to um, help members of the community, help members of the public relate better with members of the industry. I think I think strategically we've been uh, we've been allowed To think of these as being polar opposites, that the community and developers are somehow on different sides, on different teams. And if you look at how Dublin was built and a lot of other places around the world, the opposite is true. You know, developers were always part of the community. And this was how they contributed to the community in the same way as the corner shop contributes to contributes to the community or the school headmaster contributes. You know, it, it's yeah. the very same principle. And but for but somehow that got lost. Um and we we need to change that rhetoric because that's hugely unhelpful. Um, because it's feeding into real division in terms of politics, but it's also leading to bad policy decisions as well. So, for example, we're seeing in construction at the moment. Our current housing minister is calling for the reopening of construction sites, and yet, populist thinking is that that decision is being driven financially. Whereas we're in the middle of a housing crisis here; we need need more housing. Um, You know, and and you know, to to try counterbalance that, you've got um, David McWilliams calling for property buyers to strike this weekend. By the way, I fully understand where he's coming from because he understands that. The system is so dysfunctional that actually we just need to stop. We need to stop feeding it. But the the solution has to be not to polarise all of the people who are contributing to solving the problem and making it look like they're on opposite ends of the scale when the reality is we have a complicated housing crisis here in Ireland at the moment. And there is more than one solution needed. There is more than one type of housing needed. There is more than one tenure of housing needed. Um, and all of these things come together to contribute to an overall solution by by vilifying people pro- providing uh, private rental homes or private homes full stop. Not only is it unhelpful, but it's so detrimental to the market. You know, whatever about the national psyche and all of the deeper consequences, immediately in the immediate term, it's so unhelpful to the marketplace. So, um, you know, you probably saw that Mitchell McDermott um cost consultants, they their latest report showed that objections to planning permissions over the last three years are up one thousand percent.
0: Yeah, I know. They they actually work for us in, in they're very in, wrong. In, yeah. Yeah, no, it's terrible. And I, I've, I was going to ask you your views on um, on, on buildings of height, uh, tall buildings. I mean, I've always been supportive of that because I think it's if you go the higher you go. Well, when I lived in in Qatar, I lived on the forty seventh floor of this big huge tower, and it was just an amazing experience, like beautiful views out over the sea and everything. But the reality is, is you mention anything to do with height in in this city, and it's and you seem to be kind of boxed away as some sort of you know, um, I don't know what to, what the word is, but like I see Frank um, McDonald in the newspaper kind of um, talking about, you know, how negative it is and trying to kind of rile up you know, things against Johnny Ronan's plans and stuff. I mean, what's your view on the solution there in terms of height and building tall?
1: Yeah, I, well, I think that particular dispute that you're referencing has almost gone beyond a dispute about height. I It's, it's just gone Person. overly, overly personal on both sides. There's fault on both sides. Both sides have gone overly personal, which is just so unhelpful for the conversation, because actually, again, what it does is you're polarizing people, whereas my my approach to um, dealing with planning objections is always to give people more information because a lot of objections are fear based. And similarly with building heights, a lot of the objections are fear based. We haven't had them. So we fear what the consequences might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's absolutely no reason for that. And again, this is part of the, the driving force behind place engage is that we have the technology now to show people what something would be like before it exists. Use augmented, augment, yeah, use augmented, use augmented reality. Um, yeah. You know, we we can do um, we can do different simulations of daylight hours, winter hours. You know, so we can actually show people what that would be like. And actually, it's really interesting. You know, we took part in a hackathon a couple of years ago, and we actually won it. For one simple reason, we showed that, um, you know, at the time there was controversy over could an extra couple of floors go on to the Salesforce Tower um, Mm -hmm. that's next to the the new central bank. And uh, uh, there was controversy that no, it couldn't go up by an extra two floors. But actually, we went out using augmented reality and stood at the opposite side of the keys and looked across. And then using augmented reality, we applied the two extra floors, and what we could see was that because of the shape of the building, um, that it didn't impact negatively on the central bank, uh, the central bank building. Uh, and the, this is one of the points of frustration. These are tools that are readily available. They have been for a number of years. You yes. know, using augmented reality. You know, using three D models of the city. We can now experience what developments would be like. And I believe that you know, public uh, planning is a public function. So I want more members of the the community brought into this. And I also have a theory um, that has been proven on smaller projects, but I I believe would bear out on larger projects as well, that um, what we have in Ireland is we have the the planning process, or particularly the, the objection process, tends to amplify minority, loud minority voices, whereas actually the majority in a lot of these cases are in agreement and By showcasing to people what proposed developments could be like before they're built, it means people can make decisions fully formed. They can actually have all the information, think about how this is going to impact, but also look at the grander scheme in terms of more housing, bringing housing affordability to to a a greater extent than it than we have at the moment, because that's such a problem Mm -hmm. and these tools exist there's no reason for us not to be using them planners should be using them um members of the community should be using them these these are tools that exist that aid planning they're used in other countries all around the world so that's a very long that's a very long winded way to answer your question about building heights but um i i think that the conversation now has gone much too political much too personal on both sides um the reality is Every generation shapes their skyline. Dublin doesn't have a static skyline and that's what it's going to be forever. Um, there are parts of Dublin like the, the Georgian core that we absolutely want to keep as the Georgian core. We don't want skyscrapers going in there as is appropriate. I don't know one developer who wants to put a skyscraper in the Georgian core. However, we have these uh, these new Docklands uh, and the new keys that, that have been newly developed. They really could show a contemporary skyline. And by the way, it is so arrogant for one generation not to want the next generation to put their mark on their city. You know, mm. it really is the height of hubris. The reality is every generation, a, a city is only a collection of people. Every person should see themselves reflected in their city. So every generation should feed into what the skyline looks like at that point. And that doesn't mean we don't preserve what needs to be preserved. Yeah. It means we allow uh, the city to be a living, breathing organism, which it is. And by the way, it's only that because of the people. So actually, for me, this all comes full circle right back to communicating with the community and bringing them into into the urban planning, Because again planning as a public function so you know it's amazing everything we've talked about today gavin does come full circle into clear communications let people know and then let them make a decision that's that's fully um based on the facts and at mm-hmm. the moment we don't have that we have this fear based political um
0: polarization yeah,
1: yeah it, it's unhelpful
0: esg i'm seeing a huge amount Around ESG and the the environment and all that kind of stuff, but I'm I'm not seeing it so much on the housing side as I am on the corporate side. I'm just wondering, from from your industry perspective, where where are we going with ESG?
1: Um, I I think that's really interesting because when it comes down to and by the way, um, I've gotten in trouble for using acronyms before because, you know, again, not everybody might know. But in terms of the environmental, the social uh, and the governance side of it, yes, it's much bigger from a corporate point of view, because that's where that's where we tend to be attracting international funds that that have ESG metrics that they need to cross off but actually you know that th- that sounds almost cynical and I don't mean it to be um sustainability is going to be a huge driver of of how we build going forward and i'm seeing some amazing innovations um on the uh, for the ESG you know we're seeing a lot of what's happening at the tail end on the commercial real estate side you know monitoring buildings um uh, monitoring building performance Energy so that we can where we can where we can actually reduce those but to me that's the very tail end of it you know there's some really interesting innovations going on Innovation, how innovating concrete itself you know so that we won't be dealing with the same embodied carbon um, issues we're looking at different materials looking at some of the work that uh, Sidewalk Labs are doing at the moment um, through some of their projects and particularly their mass timber project I'm really interested to see how that fares out because it's quite a controversial one Um, but on on the residential side of it we are seeing changes um, and we're seeing changes on a couple of fronts Um, they're not as loud or as vocal as the corporate side but that's frankly because they don't have to be because they're not trying to attract the same international funds doesn't mean the work isn't been done. Actually, we're seeing a huge move towards um, uh, changes. These changes will be guided by the building regulations. There'll be yeah. design changes and consumer behaviors and consumer attitudes. So we are absolutely seeing this. But I can remember uh, when the BER certs were introduced, you know, 10 years ago or thereabouts, I can remember having a conversation because I knew from working with property buyers and consumers they did not care about the BER search. It did not impact the value they put on the property. That That's a decade ago. A decade on, they absolutely care and it absolutely yeah. impacts the value of the property. So actually, if you want to drive behavioural change, which is what climate action requires, then it has to have a value as well, which sounds bizarre because obviously saving the planet is its own value, but there has to be a value and we're seeing that now, um, better performing homes attract higher higher prices and once you start to see that then suddenly the motivation is there for the industry not just through new build through through retrofit as well
0: i saw there that um aib bank are offering um i think it's a half a percent lower mortgage if your rating is above i think a b plus or something like that so yeah they're green mortgages yeah Mm. so it's i mean this interesting i mean i was talking though last week my guest last week was a chap called adam lawrence and he has a portfolio in the UK of about 400 uh, apartments. And we were talking about just this issue because you're going to have to, with them bringing in these restrictions on gas central heating and oil-fired central heating, you're going to have a point at some point in the future where replacing all of the heating systems that in traditional houses that are from the sort of nineteen sixties or nineteen fifties or whatever, that's going to be a costly exercise in order to bring your sort of house up to the BE or standard. And I'm wondering, with with COVID nineteen, that you know the the costs that we've endured as a as a nation and the size of our budgets um, to kind of cope with the the expenditure around that. Is there going to be room for grants to give out to people to actually? fund these kind of changes to their property Um, because in the past you would have said well we'll just get you know local authority grants will will fund all of this but now we're talking about you know billions and billions of borrowing because of covid Uh, what are we going to who's going to give these grants now or is it going to be put on the industry to actually sort itself out i mean you know will landlords be told to just have to carry this burden themselves
1: um You're sounding much more cynical and I'm normally the one that sounds cynical, but actually um, you're asking, will there be grants? Yes, there absolutely will for a couple of reasons. And part of it is down to maybe some of the job losses around COVID as well, because remember, doing this actually uh, stimulates the economy and, and provides employment as well in fact it's one of the core tenets of of joe biden's um in this area the other thing is that obviously just last week we saw the publication of the climate action bill and the low development bill so actually ireland is committed to some very tough targets at the, that they're going to have that as a nation we're going to have to find a way to to meet so yes Retrofitting sustainably is going to be part of that, um, mm-hmm. part of the equation. So um, th- there's a couple of different benefits feeding into this, but also that motivate the government to do it. Uh, but again, you know, investment investment in homes actually uh, provides work and provides employment as well as having the overall impact of helping towards meet our targets um, On under what we expect to be published um you know at, at the moment we we've just seen i'm sure you saw it yourself the climate action bill you know if that's published in or close to its current form they're tough targets and they're, they're going to be judged on five-year rolling basis with these carbon credits so actually uh, our carbon budgets so five years isn't a long time so any government's going to be looking for early wins out of that i see retrofitting programs as being one of the early wins
0: yeah well yeah no I hope so I mean I'm a big advocate for the ESG stuff and uh, it's just I'm seeing the corporate side I mean it's it's huge you know there's there's such an emphasis on it and I'm, every day I'm I'm being asked for information on energy ratings and you know the performance of the building and stuff but outside of it, in the kind of in the kind of, we'll say, domestic or residential property investment market, you don't really hear very much from landlords in that area. So investors, I don't think in that side of the market have actually picked up on this yet.
1: Um I, I think private investors are a little bit nervous to even turn over that rock because they know that they're going to be looking at uh, paying out investments of anywhere up to maybe 25,000 uh, euros per unit. to to retrofit so they're a little bit nervous about even getting started but uh, that's not going to stop it happening because compliance compliance is not um, discretionary activity they'll have to do it Um, so yeah but I suppose one of my greater concerns is that it will definitely push investors on the edge out of the private investment market
0: yeah yeah that's the thing I mean already the tax rates and things are not that advantageous to investors in in the Irish market (music) carl i wanted to ask about inclusiveness and the imbalance in the industry around uh, male to females so if i have four daughters and i look at the at their future and whether they want to follow me into the property industry and you being you know spokesperson for the industry and things like that what what are your views on it and and are we making progress in that direction
1: uh, you know this is this is a little bit of a loaded question because um Being self-employed, you know, I'm kind of in that paddle your own canoe, which sounds which sounds very selfish in one way. But I've always led by example. So uh, obviously, property district is a female led business. So I don't, I I I expect by example that that almost that's enough. But you know, even down to smaller smaller issues like, um, for example, did you know? investment in companies, female-led companies. Ireland is actually outperforming uh, the UK and the EU in terms of investment in, in female-led companies. By the way, it's still pretty shocking. You know, some of it's still down to single digits. But but we're not the worst, which sounds very um, un- unambitious. But I, d- I don't mean it to be. But um, certainly one of the things that I have seen, um, there's a good camaraderie um, in terms of women across particularly the construction. Um, In property, I don't know if this is as much of an issue. I see some really strong female-led property businesses. Um, I think it's possibly more on the construction side, um, more on the architectural and planning side. Actually, planning, um, uh, planning, there's a huge division if you look at the private sector if you look at the public sector i would imagine it's pretty close to 50 50 but actually on the private in the private sector side so that's that's always an interesting differentiation as well so um you know uh, one of the things we try we try to do through our own property show is uh you know we interview usually two or three guests per week um so we made it a part of our commitment under the women on air initiative to always um reach out to women so at least you know one you know we'll at least reach out um on an equal basis to men and women to fill the guests on our show but anybody who's following our show will see that we will have three weeks of male only guests before we can feature one or two women and unfortunately that's because there aren't as many out there um they're also maybe not as willing to speak up Um, Because, look, you and I have done it. We've spoken up in the industry and it doesn't always go your way. You know, when you share your opinion, um, you You know, you can you can be right. You can be wrong. Uh, You won't always be popular for it. Um, Not everybody wants that. You know, one of the interesting things, though, um, I actually had somebody say to me a couple of years ago, a, a man that he was quite envious of some of the women, um, w- the women in business and women in in uh, property and construction events, because he felt, as a man, that actually there was a little bit of a closed shop as to maybe where you went to school and who you knew, and he felt that women had a little bit of an outlet away from that, but that men didn't. And I hadn't really considered that either. So you know, when I think about diversity and inclusivity, um, you know, I, I. For me, I think it needs to come down to more than just gender. It needs to have that. um, You know, I I don't think we're very good maybe at neurodiversity. And I say that as somebody who maybe comes across as very uh, outspoken or um, opinionated at times to the point where I can remember somebody I worked with previously did ask me if I was on the spectrum. And quite frankly, it had never been asked before definitely got me thinking Hmm. (laughs) maybe (laughs) i didn't take i didn't take it as an insult i just thought you know what actually maybe who knows um and and who knows for anybody who hasn't been tested but um i i don't see a lot of diversity across the industry um in a lot of other ways apart from from gender um but i actually i do think that most of the leading organizations are really taking positive steps to to counter that um and that's that's welcome it's not enough i'd like to i'd like to see more but we still have a reality where um you know i i certainly don't want to quote any controversial uh controversial speakers here but but you know one of the concepts that i've heard and i and i really agree with is that um we need to be looking towards equality of opportunity rather than equality of outcome, because there is still a choice uh, based. And actually, from my own point of view, you know, I can remember um, having a conversation with my own daughter when she was at university age to to find out, you know, would she be interested in construction? And she was really surprised that I even mentioned it. And that's despite the fact that I work in the sector. And in fact, one of the things that I voiced really that I voiced many times is I wish I had discovered the construction sector 20 years earlier in my career I I, you know I I wish I had I had gone straight into construction I think it's truly one of the most um, rewarding careers one of the there's the potential is just unlimited and the opportunities are there and yet we still see that uh, you know, we still see that there's this um, imbalance of people going into it. And I thought it was really interesting to have a conversation with my own daughter who is in who is around this. Yeah. And it, and it never crossed her mind to do it, despite the fact that I currently work in the industry. So I don't know how we go about tackling that. There's some amazing initiatives, but we're definitely looking at tackling this in early school, not even secondary school, if, if we're trying to target this. But. The concept of equality of opportunity rather than equality of outcome, I think is probably a fairer one because we're not looking to have uh, 50-50 of everything in every profession. We just want to make sure that everybody going in feels they have an equal opportunity to try it or has an equal opportunity to succeed um, if, if they choose it. But I don't think that we should be prescriptive. That that they should be. In fact, you probably saw just this morning. I was reading that STEM subjects are now suffering with up to eighty percent fallout rates at university. So there's there's a there's a broader question here. It has to be more Mm. choice driven, um, you know. And and I'm not sure that I think gender is just an oversimplification of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I was going to ask, I see that you have um, a training program for estate agents that are kind of shifting to the digital transformation. Can you tell me some of the issues that you've actually uncovered um, just from your your experiences Um is it a difficult shift for for the industry to kind of move across? Um, is there still people? I mean, obviously, nowadays, you know, we're on Zoom. I'm used to using the computer kind of pretty much eight hours a day. But I, I realise that in rural parts of the country, that's not the case. What have you, have you found that a difficult thing to train some people?
1: Uh, actually that was one of my favorite. That was one of my favorite programs that we've run. We didn't do it in twenty twenty now um, with COVID, but we will pick it up, I hope, um, by the latter part of t- we we know we normally run from kind of September. Um, so we run like an academic year. So we we aren't running one at the moment, but I'm hoping by September 2021 we'll be able to go again. And uh, that's the Agile Agent program. And it's one of my favorite things that I've done in the industry, you know, because again, I I love impacting real change. So the Agile Agent Programme, we actually identified uh, people, estate agents that were possibly being left behind by this whole PropTech movement. So we work with independent agents, not franchises, because we know that franchises or franchisees tend to be supported through the master franchise. So, you know, they didn't need our help. So actually, we worked with independent estate agents and we only take on 12 per year. And of our first year, only nine completed the program. So it is a little bit intensive if they're not ready. Uh, more completed by the by the second year. I think maybe uh, 10 of the 12 completed by the second year. but um essentially what we do for a period of uh, 11 months is that we take independent estate agents that have fewer than five income generating agents. Um, or, um, you know, we we have a cap on um, the income levels to make sure that everybody in the program is experienced similar situations um, and take them through the process of of digitizing their their industry. And, you know, we were dealing with some fairly severe things like um, even in the last two years, we were dealing with people who would come in to the office in the morning, take a photograph of the diary and then go out for the day. And if there were any changes to the diary throughout Mm, the day, well, they'd have to get a phone call and be tracked down. Um, So we actually, yeah, we learned loads about that. We learned lots about human nature on that as well. Um, But that was a really interesting one. And we deliberately, by the way, we deliberately chose ones in coastal areas so that we could do our consultations outside over the sea. So actually we were in Wexford, Waterford, East Cork, West Cork, uh county clare up in mayo so we really did around the you know we wanted to get a really good geographic spread and actually what we saw is that um and some of these were second generation and i think we'd won third generation estate agency and what we saw is that again estate agencies tend to be entrepreneurial at heart And what's interesting is about three years ago, we identified that there was a trend towards there was a trend away from the franchises and towards independent agencies. And we were talking about that at the time and it wasn't a very popular thing to be talking about in the property industry. But now we're really seeing the figures are bearing that out. There's absolutely a move towards independent estate agency. Um, but what was really interesting was how people communicate, um, you know, what their local members want. Um, but we saw that actually um, there was there. Were, one of the really interesting things we found is that even the people who were embracing technology, they were they were investing in technology, but not actually uh, using it properly. So, for example, um, we people who would systems who CRM systems would manage their cases, but feed into their accounts. They were never connected. So actually, accounts, for some reason, seemed to be uh, the last bastion, you know, that people were afraid to relinquish control on. Right. So actually, we still at a very manual approach to accounts, even though they almost all the agents had systems and CRM systems, expensive ones, that they were paying for um, and, and not connected to. So actually, accounts was definitely the biggest challenge for estate agencies when it came to digitization Uh, one of the other things we saw was that um, you know we came across agencies that had a full-time person employed to manage maybe 13 rental properties or 20 Mm -hmm. rental properties Mm -hmm. and so when mm -hmm. they learned that the same one person could manage three to four hundred units Using technology that blew their mind, but they absolutely needed to be walked through the process every month um, Mm. to be convinced that that could happen. But actually, we've had, you know, two or three really big success stories coming out of that particular program. And I think the easiest way for, you know, and we've had many more people try to get onto the program than we can allow. We only take 12 or 12 per year because I actually travel out to some of these quarterly so actually, you know, so we're really capped in what we can take on. But the biggest one for us is that we wanted estate agencies that were seen as quite influential in their area because we knew if they upped their game, then their competitors would up their game. Right. So one of the things we don't do is we don't work with estate agents who are pushing the lowest common denominator in terms of minimum fees in their area. They're doing that. And and it's not a monopolistic thing. Um, It's that we, it's just diminishing any room for value. So we want value-driven agencies. And also, you know, we definitely don't work with the the companies that are trying to get 10% better. We're working with the companies that are trying to get, you know, maybe 10 times better. And that's a really... That's a really important one for us. And actually, what we found um, was that when we came in, we were able to play kind of the part of almost independent, unique peace broker between generations. Because actually um, where there was intergenerational agencies, that's where we found the biggest challenges, but also the biggest opportunity to get it right. And here's the surprising thing. You would imagine in terms of intergenerational that it would be the older generation holding people back. That was not the experience. It was the younger generation holding people back. So again, this comes back to people confusing being innovative and being technology driven. Not all tech is innovative. Not all innovation is tech driven and where you have an innovative person in their teens, they'll be innovative all their life. It just, it, it tends to be the way. So I think that we need to really separate innovation and technology and you know, try not to put people in the bracket because they were a certain age group, because actually that was, that was the thing that actually surprised me the most, because I assumed it would be the opposite. Yeah. But when we got down to it, well, no, it wasn't.
0: Now that you're saying it, I mean, coming, because I'm in a family business, obviously. And mm-hmm. so I know the intergenerational sort of the uh, issues that we face. And, uh, and I would have thought that that's exactly the same thing that you thought is that, you know, it's the older generation sort of holding back and, you know, insisting that the kind of the old way of doing business kind of may is maintained. So that's an interesting finding. Um, Carol, we're coming to the towards the end. I was going to ask you, um, well, what would you consider the best advice that you've received to date?
1: <laughs> oh my god, you know what? Actually, that is such an unfair question because I'm appalling at listening to advice. I generally don't solicit it and I don't take it, but I there are definitely some th- there are some things I've learned. I I realized when my daughter was going into her first professional job uh the advice I gave her I i hadn't realized how much I'd internalized that but actually one of the things I really regret was that I didn't understand how to be quiet in a room when there was a lot of expertise you know um And I don't know, is it a a gender thing or is it, you know, I I was the youngest of six before my youngest sibling came along. And so I don't know, is it kind of being a younger child as well? Um, But always fighting to be heard. And there's a time and a place for that. So I'm definitely not advocating for anyone to diminish their voice. But when I think back to some of the rooms I've been in over the decade, well, you know, certainly going back kind of two decades ago or a decade and a half ago, there was a lot of expertise there. I I wish I'd kept my mouth shut and listen more.
0: (laughs) It's funny you say that. I've just been thinking of somebody said the other day, uh, it's that we have two ears and one mouth and we should use them in that proportion. (laughs) Yeah. Good advice. And um, Carol, being a podcaster and an author yourself, do you have any podcasts or books that you would recommend to people looking at entering the industry?
1: Well, I, I love Fifth Wall. Um, oh, yeah. you know that. Mm. So Brendan Wallace, you know that that's a particular highlight. So I I listen to almost anything he does, and I love yours. Um, I love. The, it, it, to be honest, there are there are a number that I'm enjoying. Um, I tend to listen. Actually, I premium YouTube, so I listen through YouTube. Um, yeah. I, and I I listen to a lot of actually VC stuff and um the the um. On the VC side, I'm really interested because I think that that's a good indicator of knowing where tech is going to go. So, for example, like the conversation you're you and I are having about sustainability, I feel like if we listened to, to if or if we followed the money that Fifth yeah. Wall was investing five years ago we wouldn't need to have this conversation so money money you know if you can follow where the money is going Before you will be became. able to predict yeah you'll yeah. be able to predict the trends three four five years down the line um you know so so they're the kind of things that i'm interested
0: well carol it's been a real pleasure having this chat today um i just wanted to give you an opportunity to if people wanted to connect with you what's the the best way to to, to connect with carol Talon
1: well, that depends when is this well when is this podcast going out? Because I am so excited. My new website is launching um hopefully in the next week or two. And I think that it is the very first um virtual room website. Oh, uh yeah, I, I researched online, can't find any more, but we do a lot of 3D work. And so we decided, wouldn't it be interesting if a whole website was that? So we've done it. Um, so actually, hopefully people will be able to connect with me through caroltallon.com within the next week. And um, and please do let me know if I'm wrong. And it's not the world's first uh, virtual uh, 3D room as a website. I think it is. But if, if not, I'd be interested to see more.
0: OK, well, I'll be putting all of those uh, links in the show notes. And um, Carol, it's been a real pleasure. Looking forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks for being on Behind the Facade.
1: Next time over coffee, I hope,
0: Gavin. Yeah, in person. Yeah, it'd be great. Thank you. So that's it for episode number 50 of Behind the Facade. Thank you so much for listening. As always, my number one ask is to leave a review or simply share the episode with someone you think who would benefit from that. And um, in the show notes today, you will find links to the various things discussed, in particular, my new YouTube channel and i would really be grateful if you guys would go directly there and you know hit subscribe uh, watch a video leave a comment let me know what you think i'm putting a fair bit of energy and uh, time into this channel so i really appreciate your views and any topics that you think i should cover i've already received some great suggestions from a couple of our listeners and i am actually in the process of working up i'm either researching the topic to create a video or I'm, um, I'm just kind of doing the background kind of footage that that's needed to create those videos. So if you want a video made specifically for a question that you have, that is the place that you should probably drop a comment. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes of this podcast, you can always connect with me on the Facebook group Behind the Facade Community. As always, my social media handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. And lastly, if you have any interest in staying up to date with various events and challenges and things that I'm working on, please add your name to the email list over at gavinjgallaghercom forward slash go. All right, guys, I'll let you go and we'll speak again next week.